0: So our reading tonight is from Isaiah chapter 6, starting on page 690, uh, going from verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. So that's Isaiah 6 on page 690, uh, just at the bottom of the page of the Church Bibles, uh, starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty." Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken.' And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. And our second reading is from Mark uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 1 going through to verse 20. That's on page 1005 of the Church Bibles. So it's page 1005, Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 1 going through to verse 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teachings said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60 or even a 100 times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown.
1: Thank you very much indeed. And um, do flick back if you've got a Bible open to Isaiah 6, because that's where we'll be spending the um, lion's share of our time this evening. It's page um, six hundred and ninety, if you've got a church Bible. And if you're if you're there, um, look up, and uh, I'll know, and I'll pray. I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, please, would you, by your Spirit, shine. A light on the page so that although by nature we can't understand your word you would enable us to understand it and although by nature we don't want to obey or trust you as you reveal yourself in your word you would enable us to obey and to trust you for this week for jesus name's sake amen Well, the human eye and the human ear are amazing, amazing inventions. Uh, The human eye apparently can delineate between 10 million different shades of colour. I guess it's slightly hard with such dim light at the moment, as Mark was saying, but basically that's what we can do in daylight. Uh, If if, uh, the human eye were to have megapixels counted, it would have the capacity to show 576 megapixels. I've no idea what that would cost from Jessup's, but I imagine it would be expensive. The ear, an amazing thing. It takes sound waves and transforms them into electrical impulses, which are carried up, auditory nerves, into the brain so that we can um, experience them and digest them as sounds. The human eye and the human ear, amazing things. With them, we navigate, we digest Um, We understand the world around us. Without them, we're in dark, and um, we're deaf, actually, and and we're lost. And um, this passage here is full of seeing and hearing. It's multi-sensory in a very real way. If you have a look down, you'll see that Isaiah there is confronted with um, an ultra HD, 4K, whatever, high-definition picture Vision of the living Lord. And he's um, assaulted with all sorts of sounds as well, a song from the seraphs, uh, shaking, trembling, and all sorts. He is on the edge of his seat, and we should be also this evening. I was um, in a John Lewis department store last week, and Kate and I meandered over to the television uh, area, which is quite dangerous for any wife to bring her husband to that kind of area. And I, I was just magnetically attracted to the beast of a TV. You know, the, they've got one that's kind of on a, it's almost on an altar, really. And uh, it, was, it was three and a half thousand pounds. And to start with, I thought that was a lot of money. But after two minutes, I was just thought, I thought, that's cheap. It's fantastic. <laughs> and Isaiah has a similar experience. He's just enveloped by this vision. So that's the kind of visual and auditory feast we have for ourselves now if you're following there are my headings on the back of the notice sheet if you're taking notes first one is this 2020 vision and the holy god terrifying 2020 vision and the holy god terrifying verses one to one to five we have a a little uh, historical note uh, in verse one in the year that king Uzziah died poor chap uh, we, we know um, from historians that was sort of 739, 740 BC, a little while ago, um, but that comment is kind of swept away. We forget about Isaiah pretty quickly because the camera zooms into a throne room uh, which is much higher. It is a throne which is high and exalted, high and lifted up. It's the throne room of the king who matters. It's the throne room of the king of the whole universe. So we forget Isaiah and our focus becomes all on the living God. And it is terrifying. Uh, Isaiah sees the robe, the sumptuous royal robe of the Lord, filling the temple. It's quite a large garment. Uh, There are seraphim. Now seraphim is a word that quite literally means burning ones, probably because of what they do. And We'll discover that later on. It doesn't mean fat baby trying to fly, covered in gold paint. It means burning ones. But they're there. And they have multiple wings, and they cover their eyes, their faces, because they don't want to be seen or to see the living Lord for fear that they will be destroyed. And thankfully, they've got some some more wings to cover their feet because they don't want to offend the living Lord. Now, normally when we talk about covering up, it's normally a sort of seaside holiday break thing to do, and it's out of modesty. But here it's out of self-preservation. They don't want to be destroyed by the Holy God. Verse 4, there's shaking and trembling. Now, the Bakerloo line runs under Katie's and my house. When a train comes through, our wine glasses tinkle gently. We think, oh, it's fun being in London. But this is not that kind of trembling, a kind of safe, urban, domestic thing of interest. It is very, very fearful indeed. It shakes the threshold and the doorposts It's more akin to an earthquake. If you've ever been in one of those, they are terrifying. You'd be under the table immediately. And there's smoke. And where there's smoke, as well-taught Cub Scouts know, there is always, verse 6, well, in fact, we're not told there's fire, but there are live coals at the very least, and we'll come back to those in a bit. But it's, it's an awesome vision in the real sense of that word. It should fill us with awe. It's a terrifying vision of the living God, who's holy, who's blazingly morally pure. And I, I while I was just looking at this passage this last week, I thought it's worth pausing with you all at this point, just to think how this vision of God, God as He really is, compares with the God as He is talked about and debated in our society today. Isn't it different? Little G God today in our society, uh, perhaps at best he's a stimulus for intrigue or interest. Oh, what do you think about? Oh, you dabble in theology? Interesting, spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. That kind of thing. Maybe he's a thing of embarrassment. You know, you just don't bring up God at the dinner party unless you're invited to. Most people would be mortified if I wore my dog collar to a dinner party. No one would sit next to me. <laughs> I'm sure. At worst, God is seen as a stimulus for hate. You know, and none more so than recently, in the last year, we've seen ISIS spread right across our screens. Now, of course, their God is, is not ours. But if you begin to speak about capital G God with any degree of fervor, people are going to be worried. It's going to lead to danger. It's going to lead to violence. That's what Dawkins would have us believe. And so God gets perhaps at best beaten around like a little ideological ball down, uh, down the pub with some friends, but nothing more than that. And yet cast your eyes back to the beginning of chapter 6. Here he is, capital G, capital O, capital D God. This is the God of the Bible, and he's revealed to us, as he really is, as weighty and real, and the God who is there, and the God supremely who is holy, who is holy. I don't know how you'll feel tomorrow morning going out into the world as a Christian. I feel in the minority. I don't wear my dog collar much out and about, but I wore mine across London uh, when was it, on Thursday last week. It felt like everyone was staring at me. It really did. They weren't being aggressive or unkind. Many smiled at me. But I reckon what was going through their minds was, wow, here's someone, maybe even here's a young person who really believes in God and takes him seriously. That's an odd thing. In our society today and it's very important therefore to keep this vision in our minds that actually here is God as he is he's holy and we're, we're going to hear that he's to be feared and to be revered this next week what did you make about the next little bit holy 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 is the Lord Almighty the whole earth full of his glory what did you make of that repetition Is it a sort of theological stutter? Or the work of an unimaginative poet? Holy, I can't think of another word. Holy. Ah, uh, holy. <laughs> I mean, put yourself in the shoes of one of the seraphim. What they're trying to do is to boil down God's character into a very brief verse. They've only got two lines, it's much shorter than most of the songs Timo leads us in. What words are they going to choose? And you've got to start with the word holy because you're talking about God. I mean, holy means blazingly pure, morally majestic. It means other, set apart, distinct, divine. So you've got to start with holy. That's a no-brainer. But where do you go from there? And they're, they're kind of, I like to imagine them having a debate. How are we really going to get these guys at St. Michael's Chester Square in the 21st century to understand just how holy God is? And one says to the other, I wish we had the tool of capitalization. That would help. We could capitalize every letter. Or even underline, or even italicize. We can't do those things. How about repetition? Well, how many times are we going to repeat it? Twice? Holy, holy? Sounds heavy. No, three times. Holy, holy, holy. Do you get the point? They're really saying he really is blazingly pure. Be careful around him. Be terrified of him. He's so distinct from us. In Hebrew thought, when you repeat a word, you just underline it, underline it, underline it again. So in Hebrew thought, they say, holy, and we think, yep, got that, fine, move on. No, holier than whatever you're thinking about. Okay, fine, got that. No, the holiest thing, person in the whole universe. Wonderful. Scary. Terrifying. That's what Isaiah realizes, because Tim drew our attention to his response, and he is petrified, is he not? He is petrified, verse 5. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. He doesn't say, wow, this is awesome Technicolor show, play it again. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. And the reason for that is that some things are never meant to mix. Uh, Naked flame and petrol, I said this morning, um, a mother and a messy room. Because the one will consume the other, always. Saying to Iona that she'll discover that with Charlotte as she grows up. But Isaiah realizes that that formula of consuming applies to human beings and God. That we cannot, as unclean people, survive in the presence of a holy God or be consumed. Apparently the way to purify copper, and I'm no expert, is to melt it and then oxidize it and reduce it again and again and again. And the heat burns off the impurities I think that's right. You can tell me afterwards it's not. But the same thing happens with the Holy God. In His presence, He burns off impurities. And that's all very well. It sounds positive until I realize just how deep my impurities run in me. So that in His presence, Isaiah the same, each one of us the same, in His presence, I would be burnt up entirely. Woe to me, I am ruined. 2020 vision holy god terrifying but there's more it's wonderful unclean lips and the merciful god humbling verses 6 to 8 verses 6 to 8 again tim uh, drew our attention to this then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he'd taken with tongs from the altar now put yourself in isaiah's sandals for a moment he's going to be worried at this point isn't he He's just said, woe to me, I'm ruined. And then a seraph comes over with a very intimidating object. He's got to be thinking, what are you going to do with that? I'd be backing away. But the seraph has wings, six of them. So he's going to lose that race. He has to discover what the purpose of the burning coal is. With it, he touched Isaiah's mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Presumably he'd realized that by then. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I was saying this morning, I don't know what you think about this, but I think our society is quite schizophrenic. It's uncertain about how to treat guilt. So on the one hand, we say, we're progressive, we're a progressive society, we're advanced, and therefore we're a permissive society. You You know, what you do behind closed doors and in private during the week, that's nothing to do with me. The sacred cow of our society is is, is sort of, don't be judgmental. If anyone calls me judgmental, I know I've gone badly wrong. You know, you just must not be seen to it. You've got a very permissive society. But at one and the same time as being permissive, we are also highly judgmental in some peculiar areas, maybe sensible areas. Let me mention a few names. Ched Evans, uh, Lance Armstrong. They've been all over our BBC news pages. Now, I'm not suggesting that they are not complex issues and that there are easy answers. I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that there are some issues over which we, have set, we say as a society, no, you must become a wandering pariah. You can never come back into the fold. You can never be forgiven. And some of which we say, no, sure, whatever. I mean, do whatever behind closed doors. We're, we're slightly schizophrenic when it comes to guilt and forgiveness. We're not quite sure how, how it works. I don't know whether you agree with me on that. But when we come to the living God of the Bible, we find he knows exactly how to deal with guilt. He specializes in forgiveness and mercy. He's got a patent on those things. It's what he does. And so the burning coal comes from the altar. And you'll know if you've ever read any of the Old Testament, the altar, well, it's the equivalent, if I can put it reverently, of under the clock at Waterloo Station. Have you ever met someone at Waterloo Station? I often meet people there, and I say, where should we meet? And I'll say, under the clock at Waterloo Station. It's kind of easy to find. And it's the same with God. The altar was the place where people could meet with him. It was the place that allowed friendship with him. Not because it was easy to find, but because it meant his holiness wouldn't destroy us. At the altar, that was the place where sacrifices were offered. A bull, a ram, a goat... Because in the economy of God, sin has a punishment. And sin's punishment is death. Someone must die where there's been sin. And so the Israelites had a choice. Is it going to be your death or is it going to be the bull's death? And the altar was the place where the bull was killed. Quite a brutal place, actually, the altar. But it was a place to be rejoiced over because that's where friendship with God could be had. It's where his holiness could consume the bull. And not the person. And of course the altar points towards the cross. Of course there are lots of crosses in the church to remind us of this. That that is the place where the ultimate sacrifice took place. Where Jesus Christ bore the punishment for the sins we should have borne. And we're going to take Holy Communion later on. We'll remember as we chew on that bread it's that visceral feeling of benefiting from Christ's death. And as we drink that wine representing his blood. We thank the Lord for that altar and all it represented. It may be a question for some of us, how could, have you ever asked this? How can anyone be forgiven before the coming of Christ? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe it seems quite unfair that Christ kind of left it so late to arrive. What about all the people before? And the simple answer is that the sacrificial system all the way through the Old Testament anticipated and foreshadowed Christ's work on the cross and in his resurrection. So that if I'm Mr. Israelite, and I put my trust in in this sacrifice of a lamb, and I I put my trust in the high priest working for me, it's as if I'm trusting Christ and his work to come, a foreshadowing of that. And because Christ's cross and his death and resurrection cast a shadow backwards as well as forwards, many from the Old Testament will have been saved, just as we will have been through Christ. It's a wonderful thing, you see that here in this passage with Isaiah. But back to, the, back to the passage. Just as Isaiah's heart rate's dropping, he realizes he's not going to be consumed. The living God speaks again. And he, he, has, a, he has a question. Uh, what does he say? He says, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Who will go for us? He's looking for a PR person. He's looking for someone to go out into the world and speak on his behalf, to to show the world what he's like, to put his character up on billboards, to be a prophet. And Isaiah, I think this is rather sweet, it's lovely. He's so taken up with being forgiven by the Lord, rescued from his consuming holiness, that I like to imagine his arm shoots right up. There's no one else there, actually. But his arm shoots right up and he says, oh, here I am, send me. And the Lord's response, go. Go. And we'll think in the next point a bit about what he's commissioned to do and the thought-provoking nature of it. But I just wanted to pause here for a second time to say that there may be some of us here this evening for whom Isaiah's call resonates. Isaiah is so indebted to the forgiveness he's found in Christ, the altar. He's so moved by the Lord's request, who will go for me? He's so clear in wanting to speak on his behalf that he puts his hand up He says, yeah, I'll do it. I'll be a prophet. And if you read the rest of the book of Isaiah, you'll see it wasn't an easy ride for him. But there may be some here for whom the same things apply. Maybe we're a banker, maybe we're in fashion, maybe we're doing all sorts of different things right now. But maybe we feel provoked by London not knowing about Christ and about the Lord. Maybe we look back to our own testimony and we're so moved by the forgiveness that's been offered to us. And maybe we hear these words, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And there's quite a bit of us that's wanting to put our hand in the air and say, yeah, I'll go. I'll do it. It may well be, it's one of our prayers actually as a staff team, that Um, over the next few years some from amongst the uh, church family morning and evening will go forward for ordination or full-time ministry of some sort or another it's a wonderful thing to do a scary thing but a wonderful thing who will go for us stick your hand up and say yeah I want to be counted I want to do just that so there we are it's the commissioning of God's prophet but finally did you notice what he was commissioned to do this is my final point Blinding and the fair God, thought provoking. Have a look down at verses 9 to 13. Did you not find these verses thought provoking as Ivan read them? I was tempted as a preacher, really, honestly, to sort of sweep them under the carpet. And Ivan gave me a second chance to do that. He um, texted me earlier on the week and said, Can I just confirm what the uh, passage is? So tempting to say, Well, it's um, actually Isaiah 6 1 to (laughs) 8. But I didn't because it wasn't. And it's nine to 13 are very important. So we just need to think about that. But it's not what Isaiah expected, is it? He's a prophet. What do prophets do? Prophets speak in order to be understood. That's what they do. And he's been told here that that his lifelong mission is to speak and not be understood. That sounds paradoxical to me, even self-defeating. It's a bit like booking a plumber Who's going to create leaks in our flat or going to a comedy show where the comedian makes people weep it's just not it's not the right thing and yet here it is so we've just got to sort of tease it out and there's something important at play when there's a surprise in scripture like this first thing is we've got to realize a bit of context from Isaiah's time when he comes onto the stage in Jerusalem the people of Israel are in an absolute state The Lord has appealed to them and pleaded with them and warned them again and again and again and again and again. He's been ringing them through the prophets incessantly. And they've been refusing to pick up. They don't want to hear from him. And consequently, their moral standards have dropped like a roller coaster. And their city, Jerusalem, is full of moral exploitation, wrong slavery, promiscuity, Uh, hypocritical religion the list goes on if you read Isaiah it's full of these kind of um, indictments and so that's the kind of historical context into which Isaiah is speaking that's important and what the people have been saying to the prophets is please don't tell me about God let me read you an excerpt from Isaiah 30 you can listen in the people say give us no more visions of what is right Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, please, I find God so tiresome. He's such a nuisance to me. I'm just, I'm quite busy actually. Don't speak to me about God. Do some magic tricks, I quite like that, find that quite interesting. But don't talk to me about God, that's what they've been saying incessantly. And the shock here in verses 9 to 13 is that when people say that to God incessantly, he says, okay. He says, okay. When people say to God, I don't want to hear you anymore. I don't want to see you anymore. He says, okay, I'll blind you to me. And I will deafen you to me. It's quite a hard teaching. I find that shocking still. It's not that Isaiah, through the rest of this book, kind of stops teaching and sh- shuts up shop and, I don't know, does his own fashion start-up and stops speaking to them. He doesn't do that. He carries on. It's a very long book of his preaching. But it's just that they can't hear him or understand. It's not that he speaks over their heads on a sort of intellectual higher echelon so that they're just like, I've no idea what he's saying. He speaks very simply. In fact, in chapter 28, they criticize him for speaking to them as if they were children, He speaks simply and persistently, and yet they will not hear. They won't hear. And it's very interesting. Did you notice the New Testament passage Ivan read? It quoted this section quite explicitly. In fact, Jesus did. And it really helps us to understand what's going on there. What happens there, in the bit that Ivan read, is that Christ is teaching in parables. You know, the parable of the sower, and there's a a real mixed crowd around him, gathered, listening, kind of some semi-interested, teenagers pulling mum, dad, let's go, it's a bit boring, that kind of thing I expect. And um, Jesus finishes the parable, and no one really understands what it's about. Nice story about a sower. Okay, fine. Interesting thing is some people stay, and they approach Jesus, and they say, look, I'd really be interested in what that was about. Please, would you let us in on the secret of your teaching? I really want to know the apostles and a few others. And he says, yeah, to you, I'll explain it. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to everyone on the outside, it's in riddles, it's in parables. In other words, they're going to be deaf to it. They're going to be blind to it. They're not going to understand the things of God. And I think it's a very helpful sort of parable working out of verses 9 to 13 because what it tells us is Jesus never turns someone away who really wants to hear the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ never does that we've just got to want to understand it we've got to come to him and say Lord you know have you ever been reading a passage that's confusing Lord please help me with this and he does doesn't he he does but if we're semi-interested and sort of pop in occasionally and dip our toe in the scriptures well, we'll go away blind and deaf to the things of God. It's quite sobering and thought-provoking, and yet it's very fair, because ultimately the Lord is only ever giving people what they ask for. Don't don't speak to me about God. Okay, I won't. So there we go. Uh, There's a, a crucial difference between Isaiah, he sees the living God in HD, Technicolor, Dolby surround sound, wonderful, And we want to pray that we have similar visions of the Lord as we read our Bibles, don't we? He's the God who's there, who's weighty, who's holy, who's merciful. And yet I want to pray that I won't be deafened to him, won't be blinded to the things of God. Because if I ask him to go away, he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would you keep us coming to you, keen to hear, bringing a large measure to your word, saying, Speak, help me, let me in on the secret. Please give me understanding. Help me to see you as you really are. I pray for us this next week as we read scripture in our quiet times that you'd reveal yourself to us again as you did to Isaiah, that we'd be rightly terrified by your holiness, that we'd be rightly moved by your mercy to us and we'd be rightly inspired to follow you more closely for Jesus name's sake